a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. To episode two of Dead to Me. How exciting that our second show coincides with Halloween, which is why our theme for this episode is The Evil, Evil Dead. Dead. Not the Sam Raimi movie starring Bruce Campbell, although I wouldn't be surprised if we managed to touch on that classic slice of horror cinema. In this episode, we'll explore the Grateful Dead's many connections to the weird and the macabre. In the mid-1960s, a bolt of lightning called Lysergic Acid transformed a pack of folk-music-loving Palo Alto kids into a beastly psychedelic R&B unit. It was scary times back when the band busted out of the laboratory, the horror show known as Vietnam was underway, and despite the groovy feels of the Summer of Love, darker tidings were on the horizon, with the Kent State incident, the concert at Altamont Speedway, the Manson family killings, and of course, Tricky Dick Nixon. We'll also discuss the dead's hair-raising improvisations, which tore open the fabric of space-time, opening wormholes into Lovecraftian dimensions, and their iconography full of skeletons and mystery. Of course, there are the songs, which catalog characters and situations of ill repute and murder, or Jerry Garcia's abiding love of classic horror flicks and creepy comics and his phantasmagoric illustrations. Our special guest Jason George, a longtime head and notable tape trader, will be joining us a little later to talk about his own love of horror and how it fits in with the world of the Grateful Dead. But first, let's check in with my co-host Eduardo Nunes, who has some thoughts about the Dead's history with the bizarre and uncanny. Eduardo, let's do this! Here we are again, except... This time, it's Halloween, so I guess we have to talk about how spooky the Grateful Dead can be, kind of across the board. We could probably start with their name, right? Right. According to one legend, it comes from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. There's a certain passage in this ancient tome that says, In the land of the night, the ship of the sun is drawn by the Grateful Dead. I've heard that is actually a bullshit story. Do you know anything about it? I've read in interviews where they talked about this night where they had called themselves the Warlocks. Another spooky name. And I guess Lesh, he was in a record store and he noticed a release by a different band named the Warlocks. And so they said, oh crap, we have to, we have to find a new name. Yeah. And you know who those other Warlocks were? The Velvet Underground. Oh, that's right. But yes, the picture they draw is very much a sort of like Mary Shelley kind of scene. They're all in this room and it's night and I picture it like raining and, you know, there's like a thunderstorm or something and lightning and and they just couldn't come up with anything they liked. And, And the story goes that Garcia goes up to the bookshelf and he picks the largest book on that shelf, which was a you know, volume one of a massive sort of Oxford English dictionary type book. It wasn't the OED, but it was something like that. Yeah. And he said, you know, he basically was like, I'm going to do this, you know, bibliomancy, which was a sort of a, a, a time honored mystical technique of just opening a book to a random page and seeing what it revealed to you. And the story goes, he opens the book and the first thing he sees on the page is the phrase, the Grateful Dead. Isn't it just like Garcia to get divination right <laughs> on the first try? On one of the UC archive type sites, someone actually went and track down the exact 1955 edition of this dictionary that had the phrase in it because other editions of that dictionary didn't have the phrase in it. No kidding. 
And it appears that one of the research assistants for this, for this edition was someone who spent a lot of time doing folklore. And so the speculation is that it was thrown in there, either by the research assistant or by the authors as a kind of tribute to her. Wow. So they had the very special edition of whatever dictionary that was. They did. In terms of the name, there's also that motif from world folklore where in the story, a dead person, someone who's recently deceased will return to the land of the living to grant certain favors to someone who's shown them a kindness. Uh, In one of the legends, a hero comes upon a group of folks who were refusing to bury a corpse. Maybe the dead person's family didn't have the money for a proper burial. So the hero ends up shelling out for it and then goes on his merry way. But later he's met by a mysterious traveler who assists him in some pretty profound ways, saving his life, finding him a princess to marry, Mm -hmm. uh, slaying monsters, obviously, because that has to happen, finding lost treasure, you know, the whole bit. But this motif shows up in uh, a lot of different folkloric traditions. In China, they have a similar story, but I think the idea of the reward is connected to the respect that their culture extends to ancestors, which is kind of a Grateful Dead idea anyway, since they're mining the traditions of the musical and poetic past. Well, I think importantly, too, the basis for that piece of folklore is the idea that it's only by failing to pursue a reward that you attain it. Yeah, in Buddhism, which is a topic we'll also be looking at through the lens of the dead later, there's the idea that a true bodhisattva does not seek attainment. Yeah. But I want to get back to the scary stuff, namely LSD. So when this band first started, they were dosing themselves regularly and heavily and having these kind of communal mind-blowing experiences. Phil Lesh had a quote that I came across where he talked about how it felt when the band played and things got a little too scary. And he said, but wait, the skies are opening. The old ones are returning. (laughs) Such a Phil Lesh thing to say. So anyway, these young people were having intense communal experiences on a powerful psychedelic drug, playing music that could get extremely weird, if not outright terrifying, for themselves and their audience. Meanwhile, their egos are getting annihilated by this new sacrament. There's absolutely that idea that the critical problem for most thinkers in the 20th century is how do you respond to meaninglessness? And one thing LSD does is it throws meaningless like right in your face by taking reality apart, by stripping kind of parts of your personality from you. That's why it doesn't work as a truth serum, because you have no truth left to tell, right? So... Uh, That's why the CIA couldn't uh, weaponize it the way they wanted to. One of the Grateful Dead's primary lyricists, Robert Hunter, took his first hit of acid as part of the CIA's MKUltra program. Yeah. And this is verified. Back when they would do things like put a flyer up at the college coffee shop bulletin board. (laughs) You know, it's like a sleep study, except you get dosed by spooks. Did you come across ever um, on message boards or just in in dark corners of the internet? There's this long screed that speculates that the dead were actually part of a government mind control program. It's all true. (laughs) Well, I don't know if it's all true or not, but I can tell you this. We could probably do an episode on Grateful Dead conspiracy theories, and maybe we will, because there are tons of them. Countless. It's everything from Tavistock Institute to Bohemian Grove. Bohemian Grove, yeah. Which definitely has truth to it because Bob Weir and I think Mickey Hart are both members. In fact, I have a little story to tell. I'm not going to name names, but a friend of mine actually went to Bohemian Grove. Right. And he told me a story about one day when he was standing in like a log kitchen next to none other than Bob Weir, 
who I'm assuming was wearing jorts. Of course. That's fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, so there's a lot of conspiratorial, mystical strangeness around the dead in general. Some of that comes down to the time period that they came from. America in the 1960s and early 70s was a scary place, mm-hmm. sort of like now. So what do you think of this ambiance that conditioned the dead? I mean, one response is obviously peace and love. Another might be, say, black magic. Well, and that's very much where the particular counterculture, I think, milieu that they found themselves in was in some ways very characteristic of what you associate with the 60s. And then in other ways, there were these sort of weird Victorian touches. Yeah, there's a general air of mysticism at the time, especially in California. And then I think of Northern California, like San Francisco, which is majestic and misty and dotted with curious architecture and populated by unusual people. It all feels out of time, but yet it connects back to a universal high strangeness in the human experience. The kinds of things that go with that, some of them came up on the first episode, which is that idea of like, you know, Bedouin drums and this universality of of certain elements of music and, and, you know, Mickey Hart self-consciously pursuing planet drum. And that has ritualistic kind of tribal connotations. And then there's the facility that a lot of Western folks developed around that time with non-Western cultures, or at least cultures that weren't kind of modern Western. And many of those ideas, which were derived from older Eastern traditions, formed a kind of corpus of occult knowledge for everything from theosophy to Aleister Crowley to Gerald Gardner and witchcraft. All of this was catnip to the young Aquarians of the time. I'm reminded of a photograph that I saw with a very young Jerry Garcia (laughs) and his partner, Mountain Girl, and they were lurking around inside one of those gorgeous Victorian houses in San Francisco that back then probably cost nothing to rent, but these days costs one gajillion dollars. And Jerry and Mountain Girl didn't look like stinking hippies. They looked like super hip goth kids black wool trench coats and Edwardian bangle, serious looks on their face, like a pair of modern day hipsters who were just getting into witchcraft. Which is absolutely fitting, especially their early aesthetic, which really was this kind of like psychedelic shredding machine that seemed determined to open up portals to other dimensions. And, you know, Lesh, I think he said more than once that his favorite book is More Than Human, I think. And that sort of becomes a kind of manifesto for the acid test, the idea of like six beings coming together and becoming something greater. And maybe the audience got to be part of something greater as well. Our first episode had a segment called Feed Your Head that featured Joseph Campbell, the global mythologist. So he had gone to a dead show and his report back on the deadheads was that these kids were somehow invoking Dionysus Mm -hmm. through a mass participatory ritual. At the end of the day, the dead are probably more Taoist than anything. You know, they can't be pinned down to any specific esoteric discipline but overall if i'm looking at the scene i'm like yeah that's pretty pagan right then there's the old world native american mysticism carlos castaneda was very popular at the time and you had this idea of spirit journeys (laughs) and other shamanic experiences there's a piece of those castaneda books and it's the hypothesis that death is like a figure that's always an arm's length to your left Mm. and when you feel like a weird shiver or something it's because you and and your death just crossed paths and death was definitely crossing this band's path on the regular starting with their peer group when janice joplin died and then of course pigpen who was in the band And there were folks along the way like Rex Jackson and other members of the crew. And they used up keyboardists like Spinal Tap and drummers. 
Death is a pervasive part of this band, absolutely. And I think about Garcia at Pigpen's funeral. Right. And Jerry was livid, and he kept saying, like, that motherfucker, he knows what's on the other side now. So it's this idea that death is this constant presence, and it's not even an ending. It's just an evolution. Just like their live shows are an evolution, man. Yeah. But seriously, Jerry did refer to their concerts as seat-of-the-pants shamanism. You start with what is sort of a conventional, structured rock show, and the longer it goes on, you know, the weirder the jams get, and then they literally break music. If you're in a vulnerable, psychedelic state, that could be a really upsetting experience. And the fact that they knew that a majority of their audience probably was vulnerable to them and still chose to kind of mess with them that way. I'm thinking again of Owsley Stanley, their chemist and financier and audio savant. He claimed that the acid tests opened up this whole universe of time-worn mythology, including various demons and spirits. He was into that. Mm -hmm. But he had this quote. He said the band had discovered on their own the secret rituals of the ancient witchcraft rites and alchemical rites of human history that had been lost. Yeah, if you're staring at broken Western culture, why would you not seek alternative ways of, of viewing and understanding the world? So I'm excited for some horror movie talk. Yeah, our guest Jason George is going to bring it. I mean, we've already found out that there are a lot of scary things in the Grateful Dead universe. And I just thought of another one. Oh, yeah? Brent Midland's eyes. <laughs> So for non-deadheads, Brent Midland was the band's keyboardist from around 1979 to 1990. He's another one who died. The man had very intense eyes. He had very intense eyes. I encourage you to go on YouTube and um, you know just type in Brent Midland. It's B-R-E-N-T-M-Y-D-L-A-N-D and see what comes back. But I must warn you, do not stare into his eyes for too long because something happened to me. <laughs> I love dead. All right, Frankie. What I think I'm hearing is that it's time for a segment. Welcome, boys and girls, to another edition of Feed Your Head. Today, we're going to be talking about Stanley Krippner and ESP. If you ask your average deadhead on the street about what a band's shows were like, they're likely to describe their experience in transcendental terms. Many will even attest to a powerful energy arising from numerous minds and psychic synchronicity. What if this communal energy, though, could be directed at people who weren't physically present at the concert? That's one of the questions that members of the Dead sought to answer in collaboration with Stanley Krippner, who was a professor of psychology at Saybrook University. In the 1960s, Krippner conducted a number of experiments to document telepathy among sleeping subjects. Garcia was fascinated by this work and made contact. And so it was agreed that the Grateful Dead and its audience would participate in a series of specially designed experiments that took place over six shows in Port Chester, New York in 1971. With deadheads acting as psychic projectors, Krippner set up two human receivers some 45 miles from the concert venue. At a scheduled point in the performance, the audience was shown pre-selected images projected on large screens, and randomization was introduced to ensure that nobody knew in advance which images would be selected. As part of the test, concertgoers were only told about one of the receivers. They were also shown a set of instructions. Number one, you are about to participate in an ESP experiment. Number two, in a few seconds, you will see a picture. Number three, try using your ESP to send this picture to Malcolm Bassent. Number four, he will try to dream about this picture. Try to send it to him. And number five, Malcolm Bassent is now at the Maimonides Dream Laboratory in Brooklyn. 
The experiments went off pretty much without a hitch, and the results were promising. At four out of the six shows, Besant's reports received high scores for how close his dreams were to the projected images, while the other participant only achieved one high score. Krippner knew that six concerts weren't enough to statistically ground his findings, so the Port Chester run was called a pilot experiment. Unfortunately, these were the only dead shows where telepathy was formally studied. Maybe Krippner should give Fish a call. Do you know an interesting or unusual deadhead we should profile? Drop us a line at info at deadtomepod.com, and maybe your story will be on a future edition of Feed Your Head. That is info at deadtomepod.com. Excited to talk to our guest, Jason George, a horror enthusiast who's also a deadhead going back some 30 years. Jason is a taper, a collector, a tape trader, and an all-around interesting cat. So, Jason, I'm really interested in how you could become both a horror fan and a Grateful Dead fan because these things don't seem immediately compatible. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that happened? So, as a younger Jay, I was really always into horror music and horror movies. My brother was a very big Misfits fan. So when I first heard the Misfits, I just loved the fact that they were singing about Halloween. I was like, wow, this is awesome. This is my favorite. This is fantastic. Right back at you. I just fell in love with that. And one day I was delivering papers and I came upon a parked car, my delivery's driveway, and it was a deadhead who had stickers all over the place. And it was never there before. Mysterious. So I was just like, wow, look at this. And there's uh, skulls just everywhere. I'm like, What's going on here? So I got to meet this person. She was actually the daughter of my neighbor. And she was a deadhead. And she was on tour. And we just started talking. She gave me a tape. Actually, she gave me two tapes. And I really dug it. Uh, it was not what I expected. But it was also something that was different to me. So... While I was listening to it, it got so freaky on me that I actually had to take my headphones off oh, because it freaked me out. It got so dark and creepy. It wasn't like a ding-dang. It was really dark, and I had to take it off. So A hippie jam band terrified the horror fanatic. Wow. I was infatuated by that. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And also skulls. Exactly. Now that I think about it, it almost sounded like a horror soundtrack to me. Right. It was almost like some sort of like Friday the 13th was going to happen. So, of course, you started going to shows. And there can be like a dark aspect to that as well, or so I hear. What's it like when you first dip your toes in? You're scared. Because when you walk into a parking lot that's filled with more people than you can imagine, it's like walking into like Times Square, but with hippies. You know, and but, <laughs> right. but yet, and not just like hippies, it was everybody. It was doctors, lawyers, kids, people on bicycles, people on skateboards, dogs, babies, people that are 80 years old, people that had seen The Grateful Dead when they first started, older heads talking about shows, like what it was like in the 70s. Just really, really interesting, but yet scary because there's a dark world that's going on around you that you don't know about until you actually know about it. It's probably like going to any circus or carnival and you walk the midway and see the people and the bright lights and hear the sounds and smell the smells. 
But underneath it, there's this strange undercurrent of mystery or even danger. Totally an undercurrent. Right. Like you could actually look over your shoulder and see a wolf man with like a mask on. And you're like, why are you wearing that mask right now? <laughs> or maybe it's actually a wolf man. You just never know. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. You're not really sure. But there's definitely a darker side to it. Um, I wonder how much of that darkness actually flows from Jerry Garcia. People tend to think of him as some sort of peace and love type figure, but he was also really into the weird and the macabre. Jerry was a, a horror fan at a young age, seeing the black and white films of Frankenstein and the matinees. He really enjoyed that scary aspect of it for the fact that like anybody does, it makes you feel like a kid. So even if you're 50 years old and you go to like a haunted house and someone jumps out and scares you, you feel like a 12 year old again. That's, I think something that Jerry really liked because that's something that I like about horror. It's something yeah. you can always get back to. It's like dead shows. It's like, it never gets old. There's a place you could go to that could scare you, but yet you could step back into reality. The band pushed it pretty hard. They wanted to step out of reality longer than most people, <laughs> and that alone had to be scary. Jerry's down for all of it. He definitely enjoyed thrills. You could definitely say that. There's a story about it getting too intense on stage for Phil Lesh, and so he took off his bass and just kind of wandered off. All right, I'm getting off here. <laughs> and then during set break, this is the only time anyone has ever suggested that Jerry Garcia behaved aggressively to anyone. But apparently he pushed Phil on the stairs and said, you get your ass back out there, put that bass back on and play the second set. <laughs> and Phil's like, yes, sir. But it doesn't seem that different from the experience that you had when you were delivering papers and had to take your headphones off because shit got too weird. No doubt. And LSD is not a fun drug if you're, if you, if you're not used to it, if you're not understanding it, you know, it's, it's like a sacrament to some people. You have to respect it. It helps to have some degree of moderation. That's one thing that that band didn't do. <laughs> not as far as I can tell, especially some of the keyboardists. Oh my, the curse of. And eventually Jerry Garcia himself. Not to get too morbid, but I think that darkness goes a ways back. He had a memory of watching his father drown when he was like five or six years old. And that is horrifying. Yeah, that's correct. I can imagine that would lead anybody down a path of escapism. For Jerry, maybe that's going to see a horror movie or reading creepy comics or drawing your own creepy comics and later becoming Captain Trips. It, that has to be some sort of a way for him to release whatever it could be. People put him on this pedestal. He never wanted to be there. So that that's a lot on someone's shoulders, especially for as long as they were a band. Right. And this guy was revered by millions of people around the world. And to be that person, I just can't imagine. It's 30 years of being a cult leader for a cult that you had no intention of ever leading. And so he sought escape through heavier drugs like cocaine and heroin. In the late 80s, he cleaned up for a while and he went to Hawaii with his drummer, Billy Kreutzman. They went scuba diving and apparently this opened up entire new worlds. He said that you know scuba diving was more psychedelic than any drugs he had ever done in his life. Well, it's easy to see why he might have liked it. It's an entirely alien and otherworldly environment down there, which 
brings me back to his illustrations. Jerry sketched and painted these phantasmagoric landscapes, and the characters he would draw were oftentimes grotesque or came from those old horror movies and comic books. He's a great artist all around. I know he had done some watercolor work. He had done some Frankensteins and creepy imagery of his own. He definitely could have been an illustrator for so many things. And yet, and maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but I think he turned down an opportunity to appear on the Simpsons because he said, once you're turned into a cartoon, it's over. (laughs) I guess ice cream is okay, though. (laughs) So what's your favorite horror movie? Night of the Living Dead, the original. It's a masterpiece. It's just as creepy as all hell. I grew up about 40 minutes from there. It's a place called Washington, Pennsylvania, where it was filmed. And next would be Texas Chainsaw. Scared the shit out of me. Just straight up. There's something about a guy with human faces that he's cut himself on top of his. It's just absolutely insane. (laughs) Both of those films have something in common. The low budget and do-it-yourself approach. A lot like The Grateful Dead when they started out, actually. And the band was pretty interested in independent cinema. Garcia worked with Michelangelo Antonioni. And the guys in the band and the crew were always running around with like Super 8 cameras and stuff. I had just recently saw a documentary and Bob was talking about how much film footage that's never been released that they filmed themselves. I can't imagine what's in that. (laughs) Maybe it's too scary to put out. (laughs) And speaking of, what's the scariest thing that happened to you at a dead show? Uh, I was at Deer Creek when they crashed the gates, but I was on the outside. It was scary in the parking lot because as soon as they crashed the gates, there were like massive amounts of police and chaos. I remember police on horseback riding by us and we stayed out. I didn't even go in because I know that it was just, if people were crashing the gates, I knew that it was out of control. And you taped a lot of shows too, right? I mean, the ones you actually went into. (laughs) Uh, What goes back to that first girl that turned me on uh the cassette tapes i was like wow this is really interesting that people like you know recorded this band and that the band actually allowed it and like wanted it to happen that's what was really like thrilling to me yeah so i guess i'm a taper i started with um just an old school set of powered microphones just some old crappy ones that i'd found actually at like a five and dime and i plugged them into an old cassette tape player right and it sounded like crap (laughs) until I was practicing around. I would set up in my backyard and have my friends play acoustic guitars and electric guitars, sit back 50 feet, 100 feet, see how it sounded, how it would make it sound better. And then... I ended up picking up a mini disc player. That's that's how it all started. I was actually scared to go to the Dead shows and tape. Uh, the first two shows that I went into, I didn't tape because it wasn't just like your local bar band with like 400 people. It was no doubt, you know, 50,000 people wandering around. You got tapers that have been taping for decades, right? And you're like, okay, and you have to like scooch into this designated area and set up your microphones next to them. And they've got like $4,000 rigs and I've got like, it's like put together with like duct tape and stuff. So, (laughs) But all tapers start somewhere, man. Like even those Fillmore West cats. That's right. They're lugging their crusty reel-to-reels from ballroom to ballroom. God bless the tapers. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to frighten you. The strange sounds you hear in the background are from a Grateful Dead performance of The Other One, Part 2, at Olympia Theatre in Paris, France, 
on May 5, 1972. And that concludes the Halloween episode of Dead to Me. Thanks for joining. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time. <laughs>